Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 46 of the Speaking Club podcast. I've got no joke this week. Blame my guest. He told me to empty my mind. Welcome to the Speaking Club podcast, because making them laugh is the secret sauce to your speaking, pitching, and business success. And now your host, Sarah Archer. Welcome to the show. On this episode, we're investigating the mind. And with the help of my guest, Brooke Hender, who switched from actor to cognitive hypnotherapist, we are exploring how the mind can get in our way and what to do about it. Off we go. Brooke Hender is a cognitive hypnotherapist and I'm delighted to have Brooke on board for an exciting double episode. Welcome, Brooke. Thank you very much, Sarah. I'm very pleased to be here for this double episode. Excellent, good. And we're going we're gonna to sort of spill the beans on what's going to happen on that uh, a bit later on. But first, I want to talk to you about what you do. And it's fascinating. You know, I don't know if we'll, we'll sort of get into it in a bit more detail, but could you sort of describe what it is that you do today? Uh, simply put, I help people get from where they are in their lives now to where they'd like to be. Um, I use cognitive hypnotherapy to do that, um, but essentially I, I help people to tell better stories about themselves. Okay, I like that. I'm all, always into stories, so I'm going to dig into that in a bit. So can you give me a potted history? You haven't always done this, have you? Can no. you give me a potted history of what you've done like pre-therapy, becoming a therapist, you know, just leading up to this point? Yeah, uh, I'd be happy to. Um, so it began on... Ten past six on a Wednesday, nineteen sixty. <laughs> no, um, the. I think, like most people, I became. I mean, there are many roads to becoming a therapist, but for me, it was, you know, about my experiences. But what led me to that point was, obviously, what I was doing before, because how you do one thing is how you do everything. So the problems I had in one area obviously manifested itself in everything I did. And we'll talk more about, obviously, my specific problems that led me to therapy myself. <laughs> right. Um, so before this, I was an actor. You can tell by your voice. It's very, so, yeah, it's lovely. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I went to drama school in Brisbane. Oh, OK. Uh, that is Brisbane, Australia. Um, I'm not Australian, although I do have two <laughs> passports. Um so yeah, I did my three years training over there, and then I came back to London, and sort of you know set out about being an actor. So I trained in my mid thirties um, at a place called QUT, and yeah, before that I was in the printing industry. Oh, wow. So I used to work for a computer software company who uh, wrote a, a system for the printing industry to support the administration. And I was their project manager, and I demonstrated the software to potential clients. So how did the acting come into the, into the picture? Were you, did you always have a yearning to be an actor, or was it something that you just thought, oh, you know, I'm presenting, I'll just, you know, that, that's the next step for <laughs> that's me. That's the logical <laughs> yeah. next step. How did it come about? I think there was always the idea of it. So I was invited to be part of a school play, obviously at school, uh, when I was about 15 or 16. Um, and I wasn't doing drama, I wasn't part of the acting club, and I think it was just because I was a bit of a show-off and <laughs> loud-mouthed. And it was Tom Stoppard's The Real Inspector Hound, and I played Major Magnus. And it was just a one-night performance at school, and it was amazing. But I didn't really connect that feeling to the possibility of being an actor. Right. It just felt very removed. And I didn't have the confidence then to, to go, I really would like to do this. I just went, wow, this is an amazing thing. And then it just sort of stopped. Yeah. And so, you know, real life continued. Um, and then it was when I was working in Australia, in the printing industry, I went to see a performance of King Lear in Bondi. And I just sat there and I went, oh, I could do this. Yeah. And so I went off and did some courses and this was in my early 30s. And yeah, I was uh, fortunate enough to get into drama school, gave up work and did three years there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And what was it like when you came out of drama school? Was it, 
was it difficult to i mean i know i i act and i know how mm. difficult it is it's practically impossible it's to make a, a living just doing yeah. you know what you what you love so you do other stuff was absolutely. it the same for you yeah absolutely yeah it was it was a struggle you know uh, yeah. financially it was a struggle and also and i've noticed this in a lot of performers is it's very easy to equate your your success as an actor with your success as a person oh yeah yeah you know what do you do i am an actor and that's then that's a complex equivalence a equals b so i am an actor so if i'm not a famous or successful actor i'm not a famous or successful person yeah and i really bought into that and i was always looking for the next thing the you know what would make what would help me rather than looking at the projects for what they were and the excitement of that project and what I wanted to get out of it artistically, I was always thinking, you know, how do I get onto TV? How do I do this? What's yeah. It's about status and credibility it's about status rather and credibility. than passion and what you actually love doing. Absolutely. But I think, you know, the issues that were underpinning, underpinning my, you know, where I was as an actor, obviously the issues I had as a person, mm. they're no different. So I was looking for acting to provide me with self-worth Right. And I'd say it's probably the worst industry to choose <laughs> yes. if you want that. As you yeah. well know, yeah. you need a lot of strength, you know, uh, because your self-esteem, if you let it, will get will take a battering. Yeah. And if you don't have that strength, you're going to find it very difficult. And I did find it very difficult. Uh, I was very lucky. The uh, a man I was working for at the time sat me down one day and said, you, you seem very unhappy. And I was. And he pointed out, he said, you know, try and remember who you were before you became an actor. Just remember, you know, look back on your life and see all the things you did before you're an actor and realise that none of them are to do with acting. And it was the start of a, it was sort of like a, a key turning in a lock. And I thought, that's really interesting. Mm. And it really helped me to start the next journey, next part of my life. Cool. And and do you do any acting at all these days? No. Or is it, w w would you if there was a, um, I have, the right part? I, well, I do get asked. Um, some people I've worked with, filmmakers, have called me up and said, oh, I've got a great role. Yeah. Interestingly, I used to play a lot of Germans. A lot of, uh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you see, yeah, yeah, people see say that. that, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, so Germans and Russians. So I've been in a few sort of films as... Yeah. as uh, German officers, etc. Um, yeah, you'll have to look at Brooks' picture on on his website. But yeah, <laughs> you could see him in a in, in a uniform. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I occasionally get a call, um, but you know, I've taken down all the sites, everything yeah, related yeah. to it. So, uh, I mean, I love acting. I love performing. I think there's something really wonderful about that sharing experience. Yeah. Um, and you'll know when you're in front of an audience, it's it's an amazing connection. And I think if I found the right project, uh, or monologues, I really love monologues. Yeah. Uh, I really, really love monologues. I think one of the high points was being at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2012, and the production I was in won a Fringe first, and there were three of us in intercut monologues, and it was a really amazing experience. Wow. So I really love that. I was there the same year. I never got anywhere near a French. <laughs> I had about six people in the audience. Well, <laughs> you know, well, it is like that. It is That's like that. That's the thing. That. I mean, we got the we got the French first at the in the final week. Wow. So it had no impact on numbers. Oh, but it was an amazing experience. Yeah. Oh, there you go. I mean, as I say, you went out on you went out on top, really. Well, when, it, yeah. when, it, when you speak about it, but it, it's interesting though because I think. You know what? I mean, we were just talking before we started recording about you. You know, just about to doing a regular vlog mm. and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, in this world of online, YouTube, and all, everyone is to an extent a performer. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the reasons that I'm talking to you today because a lot of people have an anxiety around this whole issue of presenting themselves mm. and performing, which is, for me, an essential part of yeah. business today. But I think also with what you do, you're, you know, you're working with people one-to-one, -one, but you, you are, in a sense, playing a role, mm. although you are authentic, but you, you, you have to, I think. Is, is that true? Is that fair? Yeah, I think that is fair. With my training, um, I, I was very fortunate. I trained with Trevor Sylvester, who was the founder of uh, Quest Cognitive Hypnotherapy. Um, really interesting um, man who's brought together a lot of 
disparate elements and it's a model it's not a series of particular techniques it's a model and an approach and it's very flexible and I learned from him you know that you work and it's not just him it's the basis for many therapies is obviously working in the client's model of the world ah yes yeah because it's not about me, yeah. it's what, what can I do right now that will help them? Yeah. So, you know, if somebody believes in God, it doesn't matter if I believe in God or not. That's not the issue. Yeah. If, believe, if they believe in God, then I will use whatever language and approach that will be helpful for them in the session. Yeah. Gosh, I had like an Inception. Have you seen the film Inception? I have. I was just like, when you said that, I was just like, oh, it's like go, it's like being entering the world, the world of their mind. That's Absolutely. really, that's really cool. Um, you know, and I think the more information you can gather, as you, you know, you very kindly completed my forms, which I send out with new clients, and it gives starts to give me an idea of how you see the world. Yeah. You know, whether you're. Uh, you know, and people with an LP background will be very familiar with, you know, the uh, whether you're a visual person, whether you're a kinesthetic, or yeah. and of course we're not one thing or the other. Um, but you want to; it's part of rapport. Yeah, it allows them to understand more easily and create a stronger connection, and that's what it's about. There is a theatrical element, yes, to therapy, and I, you know. I don't take, I take what I do seriously, but I do not take myself seriously. Yes. And I think, you know, whatever you need to do to help your client do. Yeah. It's not, as I said, it's not about me. No. Wow, that's interesting. So, so you mentioned the key turning in the lock and you mentioned, you know, when hmm. we first started talking about the issues, sort of issues that you were up against. So, I mean, I don't know if, it's, if, you, if you're happy to ship, but what sort of thing made you you know, find your way into therapy yourself and then I guess that led you then on to becoming a therapist. Mm. Is it the sort of things that you get people coming to you today about, similar? Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, what, I mean, I'm absolutely happy to talk about my stuff. And it's not that, you know, I've dealt with all my stuff. I would never trust a therapist who said that they're, they don't have, yeah, (laughs) that they're sorted, they've got no, those stuff. It's the human condition. Yeah. You know, we're presented with challenges and we, then it's how we deal with them. Uh, Yeah, there was a period in my life, I mean, I'm 51 now, I'd say from my mid 40s, where I went through a difficult time. I think it's a period of re-evaluation. So my issues were my relationship to myself, self-esteem. Yeah. Um, I honestly didn't think I was worth loving or worthy. And, you know, that is the most important relationship. Everything comes from that. How you see yourself obviously impacts on everything. And from that, you know, I was able to do the course. And again, I, I didn't want to be a therapist. It was only towards the end of the course that I actually went, uh, it would be interesting because I'd faced a number of challenges yes. and I still had huge amounts of fear about money, about being on my own, uh, uh, you know, about yeah. loads of stuff. Yeah. And I just thought, well, here's an opportunity. Um, I could either try and what's the worst thing that can happen? I fail. And we'll talk about failure later, maybe. But, you know, let's see what happens. Yeah. And so when the course finished... I had an opportunity to, uh, I'd be made, my position had been made redundant from work. Yeah. Um, and I'd, although I got something else, I had an opportunity to leave with a little bit of capital. Cool. So I took that opportunity and went from full-time employee to full-time cognitive hypnotherapist. Wow. And it was scary. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Blimey. Well, yeah, we'll talk about fear in a bit. Now, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, and thank you for sharing all that, I think, you know, everything comes, I think, comes back to mm. self, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, it would be, it'd be interesting when we talk about other stuff. But now, well, I guess this is a great segue onto this question. So people come to you for a range of issues, but do you find that although the issues are mm. different, they're often rooted in a similar cause? And we might have just covered it, but... Uh, yeah, I think to a large degree. I, I mean, I wouldn't say 100%. Yeah. Um, you know, when people come to see me for a phobia, right. then it's 
quite often a specific incident that happened in their childhood or and phobias can be learned from parents oh they can be yeah so if you're with a parent who's afraid of dogs their behavior and what you observe can make you afraid of dogs as well so that's an interesting thing but you know somebody i had a client who came to see me about a particular issue they had um a particular phobia and they said i think it's connected to this it was connected to that and then we dealt with that but interestingly even on something relatively simple and i don't like to use that word but you know such as uh, a phobia there is usually something underneath that and so this person i saw um it was that incident but what was underneath that was an issue of trust it was a trust thing and once we dealt with that they were able to get to a position where they could go off and have the surgery they required which they've been putting off because of this oh, phobia wow. Interesting. but like i i am petrified of spiders that's not that's not there's probably not an underlying issue or do you think there would be we don't need to go in the spider thing but there's there's other stuff but would would there be or would that just be like a surface thing i just well you have you you know you don't like spiders because you believe something about them don't you because it's not the spider a spider is just a spider it's not doing anything to you it's just being it's got the potential well it's just being a spider and in this country especially they're benign, aren't they? They are pretty benign. Yeah, yeah. So at some point, you've been told or you've told yourself or you've constructed a story about spiders yeah. that says, I don't know, they're horrible. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're... It might have been a story I got told when I was young, I'm just thinking about where someone had a spider lay eggs in their face and then, uh, I don't know, it's all sorts of horrible things, isn't there? Anyway... Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. So you know, there's never one reason, but it's always interesting when you start digging. Yeah. That yeah. you know you find what it is, and yeah. then what that represents, and then how can you deal with that? Interesting. Interesting. And and I and I guess I know because I've done a lot of self development. We were talking about some of the people that mm. I, you know, I've done, you know, NLP I've done and stuff like that. But so I know from my own self development that we have blind spots yeah. and the things that are holding us back often live in the shadows so we don't know what we don't know absolutely now is there any way i mean obviously coming to see someone like you would help that and, and shine that light but is there anything that people could do you know themselves to sort of try and find what's lurking in those shadows that might be holding them back yeah i think so i mean there are some great resources um you know there are so many books um, you, you know, we call it shelf help. Because oh, yes, a, oh, right. You know, there's so many books on your <laughs> yeah, shelf about like it. Um, and But there are some great books uh, that I have found have given me clarity or a, a, a different perspective. And once you start to understand a little bit, mm-hmm. you can do a little bit of work yourself. So, for example, um, you know, people sort of, they say, say, okay, I, you know, I really love chocolate. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, and when I buy, a, when I get a bar, I tend to eat the whole bar. Oh, yes. That sounds like me. Again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I, you know, there's no reason to. I mean, I like chocolate, but quite often I eat it and I don't feel satisfied. I've just, I, I've just eaten it and it's almost gone without appreciating and it. And then I feel cross with myself and start loathing myself. Well, so I've done that. Yeah. yeah, there's a lovely shame cycle yeah. as well. You know, and then if you could, Close your eyes and just yourself, you know, allow yourself just to think, what is it about chocolate? What feelings do I get from chocolate or whatever the thing is that by eating it makes me feel good at the time I'm doing it? What's that about? And which is always a great question. I mean, Trevor Sylvester, you know, has two great questions. What's that about and how can I use it? Which is the basis for a lot of things. And... Being curious about something and just going, what is that feeling? And have I, you know, is that a familiar feeling? And, and just simply closing your eyes and going, what's that connected to? Something will come up. So for me, chocolate was always connected to my mum giving me chocolate. And I wasn't allowed it very often. Mm-hmm. So when I got it, I used to scoff it. Ah. You, you know, so I used to eat it really, really quickly. 
Um, and there was also a specific incidents where I think my mum was trying to teach me a lesson. She gave me a massive bar of chocolate and said, you can eat as much as you like. And I ate it all. <laughs> and yes, I was sick, but it didn't put me off because it was chocolate. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Um, and you can quite, you'd be surprised at how easily these things come back to us. Now, memories are a funny thing. What we remember isn't necessarily true, but the fact that it's, we believe it makes it true. Oh, that's interesting. It's so, just plausibility. It's because obviously, I mean, I don't want to get into this, but there was that whole sort of raft of people that that maybe thought they'd been abused but hadn't been abused and all that stuff. That, yeah. that, so you can, not, not saying that they have, but there's, you can construct memories and then almost believe them. Or maybe it's a self-defence mechanism that you construct. Stuff. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting area, but, you know, as a therapist, it's not my job to prompt, yeah. oh, well, to prompt okay. people, you know, my job is to listen and to pick up on the cues that the client presents and then explore them in a way that's helpful to allow them to let go of the issues they come to see me for. It's not about me suggesting that stuff may have happened yeah, okay. or, you know, cons- yes. oh, I'm not saying, that, you know, that's a very big area, but yeah it's um so you're literally listening and then questioning not yeah. prompting yeah I, i'm i'm not there to give them advice that's no. not my that's not my job yeah everybody already has so i genuinely believe that people aren't broken because they're not broken they don't yeah. need fixing yeah so they i'm not giving them anything that they don't already have what i do is help them to find the resources they've forgotten to access be able to access mislaid yes but they have everything they need so when you ask somebody something if they go back to a particular memory it doesn't matter if it's true or not yeah they've come up with it it just has to be plausible right and a great example of that was um when i've had when i've done some of the work you know i remember an incident about being in a supermarket and you know a stranger telling me to you know my mum always said uh, you have to have your hands behind your back don't don't put, you know, don't reach out for stuff. And a stranger, this was in the 70s, obviously, and a stranger, uh, I can't remember if they smacked me or told me off or whatever. Um, and I had a strong memory of that. And it's about rules and there was, you know, a lot of stuff there. But that incident never took place. Oh, wow. There were connected things. Yes. But I had constructed... Join the dots. Join the dots. And in my head... But the fact that I believe that meant it was true for me. Yeah. And so when you do the work on it, the problems associated with it disappear yeah. or are reduced or yeah. whatever. So it doesn't have to be true. It just has to be plausible. Cool. That's interesting stuff. And um, what sorts of issues is cognitive therapy best for helping with and why? Hmm, best. Um, it covers a wide spectrum of stuff. And I think... You know, anxiety, uh, it can be issues with addiction, um, alcohol and drug addiction, uh, eating disorders, you know, weight issues, confidence, self-esteem. You know, it's, it's quite a wide spectrum of stuff. The, the great thing about the technique is it's a structure and an approach. So you don't necessarily need specialist skills to do something but obviously experience in an area and a greater understanding of an area will obviously allow you to be as effective as you can be um which is obviously why a lot of people specialize or focus so there are some you know cognitive hypnotherapies who work only in addictions some generally with eating disorders um some people with pain management and they are experts in their field Mm. you know they've written uh, they've researched, they've written papers, uh, you, you know, they attend a lot of specialist um, talks, etc. So, And what's actually involved? So when you say hypnotherapy, I'm imagining, you know, I'm looking out, out eyes, for the count. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be running around like a chicken afterwards. I don't know. That's, you know, people have that sort Absolutely. of you know, perception about it. But what is it actually about? Um, yeah, it's a tricky word, hypnotherapy. Um, as soon as you hear hypno, you go hypnosis yeah. and... And it's not. So what it is definitely not is there's no look into my eyes. There's no clocks. Yes. There's no... It is focused attention, 
but it's a conversation and it utilises the trance state. And the trance state is something we're in all the time. So if I ask you to think about what you had for dinner last night, you have to go back in time to see or experience what it was, uh, you know, which is age regression. And then you have, um, you get into a car, you drive off somewhere, you don't remember the drive, mm. you just arrive and you go, oh, okay. Yeah. You're in a trance. And yet you were still operating the machine without any problems whatsoever. So we utilise that. And when you have a problem, you go into your trance, which is your problem trance, because you get triggered you, your unconscious mind goes, right, okay, I've been triggered. Here's all the mechanisms I'm employing to protect you from whatever it is. Right. It's a trance until you, it's terminated and you evaluate what happened and you get back to normal, quote unquote. Um, and then you look at it again and go, why did I do that again? Yeah. Why did I, uh, you're in a trance. So in fact, my role is one of Dehypnotizing people, but there is no, uh, there's no formal inductions. It's not about how deep the trance is. Uh, it's about people will go where they need to go. Yeah. And for some people, they can hear. It feels like they may be underwater, and they sort of the, my words are in the distance. And for other people, it's completely clear, just like this. Yeah. They hear it all, but the way I work, it's designed to you know, work with your unconscious mind so you can hear it. And that's why when I do recordings, they can fall asleep to it and it's still playing and it will still be effective. Is it like, um, two things I guess spring to mind is what, you know, at some point in our life, a bit of code gets written, mm. like, and then that program runs, like just almost like an automa Absolutely. automated, you know, and, and it's about stopping that program and fixing that bit of broken yep. code, maybe. Absolutely. And then there's a guy called... Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote a book called Flow. Yeah. Um, and he talks about when we're doing something that we are completely passionate about, we get lost in time mm. in, in that flow. Is that that's a similar trance, but a positive one? Yeah. I mean, these things are, are not necessarily good or bad, just depending on whether those behaviours are helpful or not helpful. Yeah. So, yeah, if you're in a flow state, you're, you're in a trance, you know, because yeah. you're... You're completely focused. Your attention is focused in that moment. Like when we go on stage, yeah. for instance, I, you know, and I do do a show for an hour, and I just, you know, that time just disappears. I, you know, don't it know could where be it's five gone. Five minutes, yeah. yeah, and that is time distortion. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely, and we go through this all day. You know, uh, at certain moments, time drags on. Yeah. You know, we sit there, we feel like three hours has passed. In fact, five minutes has. <laughs> Usually, when you're at work. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> you know. Um, not my work, I have to say. It does tend to go very quickly. Um, yeah, it's something I definitely notice with clients. If they you start chatting to them and they are listening, you know, 15, 20 minutes may have passed, but they only feel it's like a couple of minutes or... Wow. Um, yeah. Cool. Okay, so it's, it's, it's that, sort of, that sort of trance. So it's, not a, so it's not a bad thing. It's not, you're not going to end up, you know, doing stuff it's not very it's not hypnosis <laughs> i mean the thing is there are there are many schools of thought there are you know um there are people who believe that depth of chance indicates um efficacy um you know i can only go on my personal experience um where i don't believe that's true but the important thing is not whether i believe it's true or not it's is it effective for the client? Yes. That's the only thing yeah, that, yeah. the only yardstick you ever need to does look it at work? is yes. does it work? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I have no issue with other schools, other therapies, because if it's helping people, great. Yeah. I'm not going to be the answer to everybody, um, nor would I want to be. Um, you know, I'm a person doing something that is helpful, but there are plenty of other people doing plenty of other things that are helpful as well yeah you know yeah. and it's about helping people it's about working with people to get into where they want to be that's the that's the bottom line brilliant okay cool i just do want to say uh, yes. that's really interesting when you're talking about code because you know it is programming it is programming so you know we believe we know we get a, a bit of code at some point that says this is true yes um and i will do this to keep you away from pain so it's like a, if this happens, then you do absolutely. this, yeah. yeah. Whether that is good for you or uh, not, absolutely. Because you, at some point there was a piece of program that went, 
uh, you know, you you exposed to a uh, a dog who nearly bit you and you got really scared. So there's a bit program that comes in and goes, well, don't go near dogs because they're dogs scary. Dogs equals danger. Yeah, dogs yeah. equals danger. Spiders equals danger. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. and you know, and what becomes what starts out as a very specific incident then becomes more generalised, and that's what happens. Is you know, it may start off as big dogs equals danger, and then it's dogs equals danger, and then it's animals equals danger, and then it, it because we're always pattern matching, we're always looking, what's this like? This is like this. What did I do for that? This is my reaction. Okay, do that. Right. And so it, it can become, yeah, and becomes more generalised until, you know, for certain problems, people don't leave their house or they won't get on a plane, they won't travel, you know, even though the incident itself may be much smaller, depending on when it took place, it's no less significant. I always think about these things like um, weeds and, and mm. you know, that sort of, you, you can have one weed and then suddenly you've got a garden Absolutely. full of weeds. And that's In my mind, that's how I picture these sort of anxieties yeah. and phobias. And it's about getting rid of all of those weeds so the flowers, the, the good stuff Absolutely. can grow. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Excellent. Okay. Limiting beliefs. Yep. I'm assuming that plays a part in how, how yep. does it figure? Do they come up often in, in yeah. the work you do with people? Definitely. We we all have limiting beliefs. If we didn't have limiting beliefs, I mean, they're not necessarily in, inherently bad, but obviously they can be, yeah. you know, because the very nature of them, they're limiting. Yeah. Um, if you believe that you're not good at something, then you probably won't be. If you believe you're good at something, you probably will be. Right. Because you'll look for evidence that supports your belief. And in the case of a limiting belief, you will distort, uh, delete and generalise what you're receiving from the world that supports that limiting belief. I'm rubbish at maths. I'm not rubbish at maths, by the way, although I used to believe I was. Um, you know, and so when I look at a complex, what I believe is a complex problem, I don't see it. Do you know what I mean? I can't yeah. see it with clarity. I used to look at it and go, what does this mean? Yeah. Uh, and then I start getting panicky about it, even though it may be quite simple, because, and then I was like, well, what does that, what does that mean? And, and and I just get into a cycle yeah. because my belief was that I wasn't very good at it. And so I, I, I was finding evidence to prove that. And, this and is, on it goes. And this is a similar, like when you buy a car, I've heard this sort of compared to when you buy a car and you buy a specific sort of car or maybe a colour and suddenly you see all the same cars. Oh, absolutely. Because it's, that, you know, it's what we're looking for. Yeah. Subconsciously it, even. And suddenly we start to see it. So if we've got something limiting, we see the stuff for that. Yeah. If we believe a positive thing... We see that stuff. You know, we get, we're bombarded with millions of bits of information every second, which we cannot process. Mm. You know, we process uh, seven plus or minus two bits of information that come to our foreground, depending on what's important for us. Mm. So, yeah, if you're all of a sudden you're thinking, I'd really like to buy uh, a VW Beetle, then when you walk out on the road, your unconscious mind has gone, I've put that into foreground because it's important for you. So you look around, you go, oh, my God, there's loads of them. Look at the colours. Oh, that one's got a, you know, that's a soft top. And, but you weren't interested in it before, so it wasn't in your conscious mind. It was just down there in your unconscious because it wasn't an important thing, so it wasn't flagged. And then, of course, as I said, because you're always, out of all these bits of information, your unconscious mind is going, what's important? Yeah. So if it's for a spider, if you don't like spiders, it's also important to be aware of them. Yes. Okay. And their behaviour. So whenever you see something that's like a spider, you'll be the first person going, spider, yeah. what do I do about that? Yeah. Depending on your personal reaction to it. So yeah, we're amazing at, uh, you know, at uh, using all the information in a helpful or unhelpful way. It's like you're telepathic, though. You talked about chocolate and you talked about a VW Beetle, and that is the car I want to buy. So I know there's, there's some weird tele telepathy going on here. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, cool. Now, um, people sometimes don't seek help to overcome something that's holding them back because they think it's just the way things are, or mm. just the way that I am, yeah. and it's not possible to change. Is that true in some cases? Or do you think that everyone has got the capacity to be helped and to transform those things that are holding them back? Well, 
if they want to change, then they will change. I can't make people change. People have to want to change. I'm, you know, what I do is work with people who want to change. Yes, there may be parts of them that don't want to change, and that's the work. But if they fundamentally want to change, then then they're in a good position to be able to. Uh, yeah, it's a very common thing. You know, um, it's just a, I used to say it myself. It's just the way I am about relationships. Well, it's just the way I am. Yeah. You know, because you believe that who you are is fixed. It can be very easy to buy into that. It's just the way I am. What? It's just the way who you are now. It doesn't have to be true tomorrow. It's you know, we only exist in the present. The past is in our imagination, and so is the future. And whether you use that helpfully or unhelpfully, well, that's that's the thing, isn't it? I think the other thing is it's convenient, isn't it? Change is hard. Mm. Any sort, you know, and so, you know, staying broken or, you know, maybe there's things not quite right with us is the safest option, the most yeah. convenient and, you know, the simplest thing to do. So it's it suits us. I guess it's... I, I was talking just the other day and there, there was a... a as a story I heard about a guy that goes into a gas station in America. I don't know if I, if I told you this before at that, that talk we were at, but he goes in and there's this dog moaning in the corner. And he said to the, to the guy at the, the, the cash desk, he said, why is the dog moaning? And he said, well, he's laying on a nail and he's groaning because it's causing him pain. And he said, you know, when, he, when he's in enough pain, he'll move. And and I think that's yeah. what happens with us. I don't know. That that feels like what happens with us. It's only when we're, you know, something happens and we're in so much discomfort mm. that that we'll we'll do something about it. But yeah, that yeah, it's interesting. There's a, a I'm a big fan of Depeche Mode. I'm definitely sure. Oh, I'm me a, too. Yeah, now I'm a child of the '80s. I'm a, a huge fan, and they did a song of a more recent album called. Um, a pain that I'm used to. Right. And I think that's the thing. Give me a pain that I'm used to. It's hard to change because it's unknown. Yeah. And we're, we don't like the unknown. The pain we have is familiar. Yeah. And we know how to deal with it. Even if it's not helpful, we, we get triggered. So I used to get angry over, I had a thing about unfairness. So if I thought something was unfair, I would get triggered. Yeah. So at work... If somebody asked me to do something that I thought was unfair, I would get really annoyed, like really annoyed, not violent or anything like that. But I would just go, I, I would get hot and red faced and angry. I would do it, but oh, under duress, yeah. I'd be like, but this is unfair. I shouldn't be doing this. They get and there's all these things, um, you know, and that's just how I was, yeah. you know, and I just thought, well, it's not a massive thing. It's annoying, but it's just the way I am. It didn't have to be like that, and I don't get like that now. You know, it's interesting because you you look at it and, and you do the work to find out what that was about. Um, but, yeah, we have all these things. But I was just so used to that because it wasn't, well, I don't know, maybe it was having a negative impact. <laughs> I'm sure it was, in fact. Um, and I'm sure my work colleagues would have a very different opinion about <laughs> it if you asked them. Um you know, and we do these things yeah. and we just go, well, that's just the way I am. I can, it's not really that bad. And on we go. And, but when you come to change, it's like, well, who will I be? Yes. It's, and it's, it's, you know, who will I be? What, how will I behave? And, and partners of people who are going through therapy also like, what does that mean for me? How, if they change, oh, yeah. how does that impact me? What's that say about me? Now that's their stuff. But, you know, people, people's relationship to change, it can be uh, very interesting. Gosh, I never thought about it from that perspective. Mm. Because, if, you know, there must be angst from their perspective as well in terms of, you know, almost keeping you as they know you. Because what happens to the relationship? Does it change? Well, is, is the, is your it relationship secure? is predicated yeah. on, on that dynamic. Gosh. So if that dynamic changes, then what do, what do they do about that? Yeah. Or are they ready for that? Now, the truth is we change all the time you know, um, and relationships you know, get stronger or, you know, you drift apart. And, and there are many reasons for these things. But, you know, yeah, a lot of people find it difficult, you know, when their partner wants to, to go off and have therapy. They, you know, they can be quite worried about what it means for them. Wow. 
I hadn't even considered that before. That's really um, interesting. So they make, you know, friends and family. It's like when people give up drinking. So I'm not drinking this year, just as an experiment. Oh, right. Okay. You know, ha- what, I was just curious, what would it be like? What difference would it make to my life if I didn't drink alcohol this year? And, you know, the truth is it's actually not made a massive impact. I, I love waking up without a hangover. I love waking up with clarity of mind, and, and that's actually a really positive for me. But, you know, when I first started doing it, you know, people were like, oh, you're not drinking, but, you know, dry January's finished. And I'm like, well, no, I'm going to do it for a year. And they're like, oh, that's weird. And you do naturally get less invitations to the pub. Oh. Because there's something about you not drinking. That makes that they, them feel bad, that, that maybe. makes them feel a bit weird or, oh, wow. you know, um, not in all cases, not with everybody, but, you know, like all generalisations, it's only partly true. Um but yeah, it's interesting because it's, they're, they're like, you know, have you got a problem with alcohol? What's why? Yeah, they get quite. Sort of can, yeah, no, about some it. people do can, can get quite funny about it, but it's because you they possibly they think you're making a value judgment about them. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and it's not. It's nothing to do with that. It's just curiosity on my part, and I have no idea what I'll do next year. Um, you know, I drink zero point five alcohol, so no alcohol beer and yeah. stuff, and you know. It's it's fine. It's completely fine. I go to the pub and I I drink them and yeah. you know I just leave when you know I've had enough and yeah. you know I'm just sober. Yeah. Interestingly enough, though, when I've had a three or four, I do feel a bit lightheaded. Is that placebo? Effect? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. It's just I'm in that environment, mm. and, you know, and I know on one level I'm not, but there's still a part of me that comes out of the pub after say four, you know, yeah. pints, but you know four bottles of non-alcoholic beer and there is an element of me that goes oh it's a bit of a pub you know so (laughs) you know it's interesting it's a fantastic thing how the mind works it's it's a strange thing Mm. now this is all about you know the the audience for the show is people who uh, speak or you speaking to other business now I've come across quite a few people who you know we know public speaking Mm. is as a big issue for a lot of people and even you know and and dimension aspects of it and we're going to talk about me and a bit later which which might surprise some people but I you know I wanted to talk about public speaking anxiety and people are being held back potentially in their career or life and I often think about you know I mean it's an extreme example but someone who maybe doesn't propose because they're absolutely petrified of doing that wedding speech you know you don't know how like we said things escalate so i mean is this something that you've come across before in your work um and and have you got any tips for people on dealing with this uh yeah i have come across it um i mean i've worked with performers before um and but public speaking is a very common issue Mm. and it's obviously different for everybody you know, the reasons for why they struggle is a very personal one. Because some people are very comfortable in one particular context. So, I've, uh, you know, I know people when there's five or six people um, around a desk sitting down, they have absolutely no problem talking to those five or six people. If they have to stand up, just the very difference of standing up starts to impact them, on them negatively. Um, and then the thought of a presentation they just cannot do, even though they're completely comfortable on one level. And that's the thing. It's it's finding the limits of the problem and where the problem's worse and when you don't have the problem. We rarely have problems all the time. Yeah. So it's always defining when do you have the problem, when's it worst, and when don't you have the problem, and what's the difference and, and looking at that. Now, um, so in that particular example when they in fact it didn't matter how many people they had around the desk as long as they were sitting down they were completely fine as soon as they stood up um there was one particular thing where the relationship was uh when they used to stand up at school and they got things wrong and yes. people laughed at yes, them I've heard so that a lot. Yeah. the very the very fact that they stood up the the physical act was the trigger for the unconscious link uh, to what happened yeah. at school getting something wrong and being laughed at. When they were sitting down, that link wasn't actuated. It didn't activate in that same way. But when they stood up, on an unconscious level, they were going, "Uh, what's this like? Oh, it's like school. What happened? This did. Wow. Yeah. So trying to find 
when these when the, the and I guess because you do you know you get that sort of that that I don't know that clutching mm. feeling you know in your tummy yep. in your chest and you know you can you know you can feel it coming on when and I guess that's at you know at the edge of your comfort it's not it's not even it's beyond comfort it's not just about because every time we do something new there is that level of anxiety that change that we talked about but this is slightly different mm. isn't it it's it's a it's a, a more debilitating yeah, it's uh, feeling yeah. than than simply being outside of your comfort zone um but yeah so so being aware of that and then and then anything that they can do is I and mean, is it just doing it I mean, that's part of the thing for me is with people is, you know, the more you do something, the less frightening it becomes. Yeah, because you've got evidence of success. Oh, yes, right. Okay. So you're then feeding back into the machine that's looking for evidence to support your view. Yeah. So if you repeatedly are successful at it, then when you're looking, when we get the information in, we get positive reinforcement because we go, ah, Okay, well, when I was in the situation last time, it went fine. Yes. And so you're building. So, yes, pushing on through, keep doing it, is definitely one strategy. But only if you can even cope but with But if thought. you can do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I think there are, you know, so lots of people go to networking groups where you get to stand up for a little bit of time. Yeah. Those are great examples where you may have 40 seconds or a minute to stand up and talk about yourself you can use that because it doesn't matter if you fail um, because all failure is is feedback. Yes. You know, there is, um, I'm cribbing a lot from Trevor Sylvester here, so if he's listening to this, thank you, Trevor. Yeah. Um, but there is no such thing as failure, only feedback, and yes. it's absolutely true. You know, try it, see where it lands, try not to beat yourself up over it and just go, what was it about that that I could have done better? What did I notice about myself? What could I do differently? And then the next week, try it again and see. And keep refining it until you get to a point where you go, I feel comfortable in this situation. Now, then, if those circumstances change, you still might get triggered to what the contextual issue was. Yeah. Um, because then you may be in a different circumstance. Okay, you're doing the presentation to the board. Right, yeah. Trigger. Stakes are higher. Stakes are yeah. higher. It may be linked to the same incident or something else, but there's there's a thing there. And so look at going back and reframing the original incident or what you believe was the um, original incident will then allow you to let go of that. And if so, let's say someone, you know, if they couldn't figure it out themselves, you know, and despite their mm. best efforts, they were still getting held back. Coming to someone like yourself would be a, a way forward. Absolutely. And is it, a, you know... I hate to sort of ask this question, but people will probably, is it a quick fix? Is it, does it depend on the person? How, how does, you know, a guide, any sort of idea of people of, of how quickly these things can be resolved? And I guess the question is if they are committed Absolutely. to um, doing it. Yeah, and it's, you know, I, I want to clarify about the commitment. You know, acknowledging you want to change and going and making that change doesn't mean that you're not, there aren't parts of you that are going to fight hard against it. But that's, that's what we do. That's mm. to work. Everything is information. You know, so when a client resists, it's just information that allows you to go, oh, okay, that particular approach may not be the most suitable. We'll try something else that might work in a, more, a different way. Um, but yeah, you obviously they want to change. What I do is, so cognitive hypnotherapy is brief therapy, right. which means it takes as long as it takes and no longer but no quicker. Yeah. Typically, I would see people for four to six sessions. Yeah. So it's solution-focused. The idea is you have a problem, you know what you want to, what your solution is, and how do we get there in the shortest amount of time possible. Cool. And that's what we do. Um, some people, I have seen people for, say, two sessions, and I've seen people... Um, I haven't seen anybody longer than six sessions yet. Yeah for a particular problem. Now, they may come back and work with something else because quite often once you sort of dealt, it's, you know... Pandora's box. Well, yeah, open. it's the <laughs> onion layer. You know, yeah. you peel off one layer and you go, oh, that's interesting, I found this thing. Yeah. And that's, but that's different. Yeah. And there's always, you know, what do we deal... Do you deal with what the issue that somebody came for or do you deal with what you see? Yes. And there's always that balance. You know, oh, but always do what's best for the client at that time. 
Um, again, sorry, Trevor, I'm again, there's going to be a copyright issue here, I'm sure, but he says, you know, cut at the speed of the bread, not the speed of the knife. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, and we've all got that really soft loaf and, gone, yeah, yeah. and it's just flown everywhere nice and slowly and you cut through and you get a beautiful slice. And that's the thing. People will get to where they need to be at the pace they need to go at. It's not your job to chivy them up. It's your job to work with them. Obviously, get them there as quickly as possible, but no quicker. Yeah. When they're ready, they're ready. And so that's how you work. But you know it can be very very quick wow it can be very quick it's not because it's not there to delve for the sake of it it's focused work what's the problem what's it linked to what do we need to do to that but by doing it means you can let go of the story attached to it that means you no longer have the problem brilliant okay cool thank you there's some brilliant tips there for people to uh to try and maybe work things through themselves, but if not, at least they know what they were going to get if Absolutely. they go and see someone like you. Smashing, thank you. But right, now I've got some standard questions which I yep. want to ask you. Then I want to talk about how people can find you. Mm -hmm. And then I want to preview what we're going to be doing next. Okay. Okay, so now do you do speaking now yourself? Aside from, you know, in your in your current role and obviously you've acted before but do you do any speaking at all at the, you know public speaking presentations for what you do uh yes so i go along to networking meetings yeah. on a regular basis and i give talks yeah at those things they're usually about 15 20 minutes yeah and they can be from about eight to 20 people okay. so yeah cool. i'm happy to do them um and i also give workshops as well um but they can be about sort of two to three hours Okay, cool. So, yes, I still do it. Interesting. Okay, and, and I also, I guess the question I wanted to find out as well is, you know, what has performing, or because one of the like, things I like to find out is what has performing, or in your case performing, and speaking, what's the best thing it's done for you? I really enjoy the technical skills you get from the training. Yeah. So a supported voice, um feeling comfortable with my voice. Uh, I remember the sort of early days of listening to myself and seeing myself and just, like most people, cringing, yeah. going, oh, my God. Um, becoming comfortable with that f through familiarity and also um, realising that it's okay to be human. So when I edit stuff, I don't edit it to be perfect. I'm quite happy to pause. I'm sure even, in, even listening to this, just like then... I'll make slip-ups and mistakes. I'm completely happy with that. It's, uh, I'm a human being talking and thinking in the moment, and I'm completely fine with that. So the training is sort of the, the technical skills to be able to breathe and to have a... Okay, I'll say what everybody else says, a really loud voice. <laughs> I, I like to think rich and resonant, but they just say really loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's cool, that's cool. And, and what's the... Is there, has there ever been, like, a worst your worst performance or your worst speaking thing, like that oh. nightmare, you're like, oh, my God, I uh, want that never to happen again. And what was it? Uh, okay, second year at drama school, our first public performance, we were doing a miscellany of Shakespeare scenes. It was called Shakespeare Unzipped. And I was playing Iago in oh, a right. scene from Othello. Yeah, yeah. And I dried or forgot my lines. And those few seconds, it came back to me probably within about five seconds. Didn't feel like five seconds. It felt like an hour. I literally <laughs> looked out and my mind was a complete blank. My fellow actors were looking at me going, OK, let's see how this goes. And I was looking at them going, I have no idea <laughs> what, comes next. what comes next. I have no idea. And, yeah, and about five seconds later, I probably repeated the line and then carried on. Yeah, time distortion. That, that really... Uh, that it's, really, it's painful, isn't it? It's very, very painful when you look out and there's four, uh, two to four hundred people in an audience looking and going, and these are all other actors just... and stuff, especially, and just going, OK, he looks like he's dried. That, that, was, that was quite a moment. That was special. <laughs> oh, it's, it's an, I had uh, 
I've been trying to get up early to do this thing called the Miracle Morning, and it was I had a. I've heard about that. Yeah, I had a, a performance the other week, and my brain was not firing on all cylinders, and and the performance went well, but there was one line I just kept saying, "He came to Spring One London," and and I, and and my brain went, "That's that's not right," and 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 I actually said it again, "He came to Spring One London," and I was just like, "I've got to move on because I, I I just don't have the." Nightmare, yeah. but anyway, yeah. It, it ha I would like to say that that wasn't the last time I tried, but there is something as you, uh, as I'm sure you've experienced, you become comfortable with the uncomfortable, yes, and you sort of go, I'll either improvise, yes. obviously, it's a bit more difficult in Shakespeare, yeah, um, or if I'm in a more modern play, I if you know what you're talking about, then if you don't get the words right, then at least you, you've got the sense of it. Um, not ideal, but no, no. Well, like, it's good. It's a good practice. It was a rehearsal. It was, it was a preview. So now I'm going to go. If it happens again, hopefully it never will. Um, it's too much champagne, which is part <laughs> of the case. So it will, uh, yeah. you know, it's good to have something go wrong. Okay, now, what is the one book you've read that's had most impact on your life and why? Ooh, uh, that's that's interesting. Um, the book that I recommend the most to clients is Ryan Holiday's The Obstacle is the Way, oh. which is like a stoic book. Um, and I've read what do you it, mean by stoic? Well, book? you know, not in that stiff upper lip way, but about being able to look at events and, you know, be able to, to see them positively. Right. Not necessarily just positively. This is going to be a really bad summation, but... Um, one thing we have control over is how we choose to react to things. Yes, yes. That's the one thing we, when we're not triggered by other things. Um, and it's a book that I have found has given me a lot of clarity about when things happen. And things happen that aren't good. I mean, that's life. Yes. There's going to be good and the not so good. And it's how we choose to react to it and how we deal with it that makes the difference. And that's a book that I found has given, it's a very straightforward book and has given a lot of clarity. Um, Interesting. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's probably on the self-help. Yeah. Um, I think the most impactful book was uh, Kerry Holmes' The Bone People, which is a, a, she's a New Zealand writer. Is that a fiction? It's fiction, but it's just the most amazing book. That's oh, a, a personal book that's really... I don't know, influenced me in, I think it was, I read it, I was introduced to it um, a long time ago when I lived in Australia and it was just the most interesting book I'd read to date, I think, at the time. And it's, I don't know how well known it is, but... I've not heard of it. I've not heard of either of those. I'm going to check yeah, those out. You've made me good. intrigued. But is it, as you say, uh, The Morning Miracle, is it? Miracle Morning. Miracle Morning. Um, in fact, I was chatting with a client online last night and... They mentioned that they've been using that book and how helpful they found it. And I'm not sure there's another book by Jeff Olson called The Slight Edge. Yes, yes. And I don't know, I haven't read uh, that book, so I, um, I've read The Slight Edge, so I don't know how similar or what they what the differences are, but I like anything that allows you to, to get on and do stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it's been very good. Yeah, I'm... Uh... I can tell you more about it. It's oh, good. good. It's, yeah. good. it's good. We won't do that on the recording, though. I'm sure we can do that in <laughs> we'll private. We'll do that later. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, okay. And what's the best piece of business advice that you've ever had, and why? Oh, uh, I should have. Uh, did you send me these questions? I don't remember no, those no, ones. No, these no, are the. Nope. Um, I'm very lucky in what I do. Is that I work. I have a supervisor. Yeah. Um, as a cognitive hypnotherapist. And the supervisor I have is a, a man called Russell Davis, who's based in Cornwall, fantastic person, but very good on the business side as well. And I, um, he's always challenged me to raise my profile in terms of being visible. Um, so I think, that, so I'm going to slightly cheat here, so being visible and add value. So everything I do, no matter where I am, I'm always looking to add value. What can I say right now that by saying it might help? Yeah. What's, and whether it's at networking, I don't sell myself. I'd rather get somebody thinking. I'd rather give them a, sn a snippet 
yeah. or a nugget of information that might just make a difference to them yes. um, rather than start, try and sell my business because that's, that's how I'd like to work. Yeah, um, yeah and, and, being, and being visible. So writing blogs, having an opinion. Um, don't get me wrong, I am learning and I will be forever learning. What I've shared with you today is not all the information I've discovered. I mean, I have discovered, uh, I've seen evidence of it, but, you know, I've, uh, you know, I'm on the shoulder of giants. Yes, You yes, know, I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a person who is doing something, but I didn't invent these things. Yeah. You know, people, you know, the, the people like Milton Erickson yes, um, yeah. uh, and Trevor Sylvester and all the NLP, you know, there are so many people, yeah. you know, it's their work that I use. It's not me coming up. What I bring is me. Yes. What I bring is my experience. What yeah. I bring is, is my life experience and who I am to use that information. Um, but, you know, I'm learning. And getting over... So there was a time when I was like, who am I? Who am I to share my opinion? Yeah. Who am I... To, who am I to do this podcast? Yeah. You, it's very easy to get into that. We've all started out as learners. We've all started out as beginners. And just because we're using tools that were, were discovered by others or, uh, you know, we're all building on something else, all of us. Um, and so, yeah, getting over that imposter syndrome, yes. you know, that who am I? And just saying, this is who I am. This is where I'm at. Yeah. I know one of the things when I was thinking about doing this is there will be experienced cognitive hypnotherapists and plenty of others who will be listening and going, well, that's not right. He's not doing that. What's he mean by that? That's not clear. Yeah. And, and you know what? That's completely fine. Good, because I think you've said some really good, useful, <laughs> valuable things today. So I'm glad it didn't stop you from, uh, from coming on. And, and finally, if... If you could have one mentor, alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Jesus. Oh. Now, I'm not, I'm not really a believer in God as such in that whole way. But it would be amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing yeah. to chat to the man they call Jesus. Yes, yeah. To hear that message, to to see, you know, to be aware of that context, to understand, to put everything in place, to genuinely hear the message and what that I think that would be interesting. Yeah, that's cool. No, you're right. You yeah, know, because yeah. I think any of those you whether you like religion or not, you know, whether it's uh Jesus or Muhammad, peace and blessings upon him. Um, Buddha. Buddha. It, I don't think it matters who, you know, these are, these are figures who have, a, have and continue to have a fundamental and massive impact on the world. So like it or not, they're having an impact and there's message and learning and all those things. So that would be one hell of a dinner party, that one. Uh, they, well, yeah, that would be. But <laughs> yeah, so I think having an opportunity to to speak to yeah. one of them would be amazing. Cool. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Right. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to preview in a minute, but let's, how can people find you? Where's the best place to find you if they want to maybe book on a workshop, book some training with you? Where, where should they go? Uh, probably a good place to start is my website, which is brookhender.com. Okay. Um, and as I said, well, you know, www.brookhender.com. Yes, yeah. I'll put a link in the show notes Lovely, as well. thank you very much. That's helpful. Um, I have to say, actually, really, I would advise you to check out the chicken and the mushroom blog because it made me chuckle. Um, it's, a very, talk of, <laughs> it's a very good example of us making things mean stuff that they don't. Um, that's all I'm going to tell you. Look at the chicken and the mushroom. Uh, so you'll do a double take. Um, I enjoyed that one. Um, uh, yeah. And what about social media, Brooke? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. I tend to use LinkedIn and Facebook most. Um, it's more of a time thing than anything else. Yes. 
Um, as you know, it's, yeah, it's yeah. A, it is a full-time job when you have a full-time job anyway. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I post my blogs. As I said, I've just started vlogging. And is that going to be on YouTube or on um, I put it on YouTube and I, I'm putting it on YouTube at the moment. Um, and I'll post links on social media. And the idea is that every couple of weeks initially and then hopefully every week I'll, I'll post something short. Um, it's designed just to make you think no cool. more than sort of a couple of minutes, two and a half minutes. Uh, about what happens in my life. I think it's really important to share, you know, what happens in your life. I'm not perfect. I'm just a bloke doing something and I make mistakes and but I'm always looking for the learning and yeah, and I like I like to share that. Brilliant. And that's a great segue. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't often preview what's coming up on on next week's show or it may be a week in between. I don't know yet, but we'll basically in terms of sharing. Now, some of you may think, you know, I act I do stand-up comedy. I, uh, I am not afraid to get up in front of an audience. But as well as spiders, I find Facebook Live, like, really, I have a lot of anxiety around it. And it's bizarre. So I don't really understand it. I have some, some ideas, potentially, about why it's such a big issue for me. And given the thing, you know, the work that I do, it would be uh, a good business tool for me to be using mm. more often. And so I have asked Brooke if he would do a session with me on perhaps understanding what the issue is with me and Facebook Lives in order that perhaps I can get over that. And maybe some of the things that come up may resonate with you and help you overcome stuff that's holding you back. So in the meantime, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, I am about to get uh, hypnotherapied. <laughs> Thanks, Brooke. Thank you, Sarah. Well, there you go. That was fascinating. I find it just so interesting, our mind. And although it can be hard, it's so good to know, firstly, that we're not alone, that everyone, or pretty much everyone, is going through similar stuff. And also that there are things you can do and support you can get to change the story and the programs that you're running about yourself. Well, as you heard, Brooke and I did some work on an issue that's getting in my way, and that episode will be coming up in a couple of weeks. Tune in again next week, though, when I have a voice coach on the show sharing some amazing tips for making a bigger impact with your voice. Thanks so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you're not subscribed, make sure you do so you don't miss an episode. And if you do enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and spread the word. Catch you next week. And in the meantime, don't forget to grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Thanks for listening to the Speaking Club podcast at www.saraharcher.co.uk.